Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Andrew, here we are on Trump indictment number three. Uh, You have so much experience reading these filings. What do you look for first when a new one drops? You know, I I try and keep an analytical mind and I think about the facts and the law. But in this one, it was really hard not to just react as a a human being to the allegations here because it's it's unfortunately it's surreal, but all too real. That is Andrew Weissman, the acclaimed lawyer, former federal prosecutor, and now NYU professor and MSNBC regular. He's the co-host of their Prosecuting Donald Trump podcast. And I'm Brian Stelter. Let me welcome you to our podcast, uh, Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Today, we're going inside the Trump trials. And of course, the latest indictment, one of the most dramatic in American history. A former president charged with trying to steal an election using fraud and lies to hold on to power no matter what. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. So, Andrew, reacting to this as a as a human being, but also as someone who has lived through this story for the last few years, um, what stood out to you about the newest indictment? So, on the on the facts the way in which this case is going to be proved that you have so many people. I started creating a list and you have the White House counsel, you have the White House deputy counsel, you have the attorney general, you have the acting attorney general, you have the acting deputy attorney general, you have the head of the Department of Homeland Security, you have the DNI, you have state officials, you have numerous court cases, you have the defendant on tape, you have his words. And then, of course, you have the vice president of the United States, who clearly has been in the grand jury. Um, the, the, the variety of sources of evidence is so unusual in mm. a criminal case. So I was just thinking about how rock solid it is. And then remember, everybody I just talked about is a Republican. Almost all of these people were actually selected by Donald Trump himself. So there's going to be no cross-examination that's plausible of some motive to to get him when, I mean, these are his people. So that was sort of really struck me about the just how unusually strong this case is compared to the kinds of cases I, I'm used to prosecuting. Hmm. And everyone remembers you were the lead prosecutor on Robert Mueller's team in the special counsel office during the Trump presidency. Did you ever think during the Trump years that we would be here in 2023 dealing with the aftermath of this insurrection? When I was on the special counsel team, no, I didn't. I knew that the 
in my opinion, that the former president was capable of committing crimes. We outlined obstruction that he had committed in connection with our investigation. So it wasn't surprised that he would be uh, committing crimes. The idea, though, that he would oppose the peaceful transfer of power is unimaginable that that we're in that position. But I have to say what's more unimaginable is our reaction as a American people to that fact. That this should not be something that is political and seen through a political lens in the same way that when we were outlining foreign interference in an American election, that is not a political issue. That's an American democracy issue, as is anybody, whether it's the president or anyone, undermining uh, a presidential or any other election. And so what's disheartening this morning and the day after is reading the National Review and the Wall Street Journal and the idea that this case is really a trial about us not about Donald Trump. The facts in the law are absolutely clear. This is really a trial about whether we are going to adhere to the rule of law in this country. Well, I think special counsel Jack Smith is is thinking the same thoughts you are. Let's play a part of what he said on Tuesday when the indictment was handed up. The attack on our nation's capital on January 6th, 2021, was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy. As described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies. Lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the U.S. government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. So it should not be political, but Andrew, is there any way to untangle the politics from this? I don't see a way. Uh, No, unfortunately, I think there is not at, at the same time that it can be gratifying to see the the rule of law and and charges brought for accountability it is both exasperating and uh, demoralizing to see people who know better not respond in a way that is required by being a citizen in this country i really appreciate the way you're giving voice to that because I um, I feel it too, but I sometimes treat it like the weather or the climate, you know, that, well, it's this is just the way the, you know, it's going to rain tomorrow. There's nothing we can do about it. You know, that's it. you're reminding I, us it's not yeah. like the weather. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that um, I saw and it was commented on during the special counsel Mueller investigation is people said that if all of the facts had come out just at once as opposed to in a sort of drip, drip, drip through numerous indictments. It yeah. might have had a different, there might have been a different reaction. I don't know if there would have been, but one of the thing, things that um, Donald Trump is, has done is because, as you said, this is the third indictment. I mean, just that statement alone is just remarkable. That There's a way that he anesthetizes us uh, because the shock value is gone. And we do have people who just adhere to a sort of might-make-right view. Uh, I think there's a certain amount of people saying, what are you going to do about it? Um, And this, I think, is a defining moment for our country as to how are we going to respond to this trial 
Not, mm. I don't mean the criminal trial. I mean of a defendant. It's like this trial at this time. And then I guess just to get off my high horse, I do think that it's going to be incumbent on the chief justice of the United States to make this trial public. He has the power to do that. And I You mean think cameras what, in the courtroom, Andrew? Exactly. I mean, I, yes, of course, the trial is public in the sense that you can go there and see it if you're lucky enough to get a seat or be in the overflow media room. But it, I think it's so important to, regardless of what the outcome is, I mean, whether there's a conviction or an acquittal, it is going to be really important for the public to see that evidence so that we have faith in, their, in the system and people can evaluate the evidence. There are no cameras in federal court. It's been a frustration of mine and, and many others for, for a long time. But are there, are there any chance they'd actually open it up? Uh, I think there is. I mean, <laughs> okay. this is this is a unique case. Remember, during COVID, the Supreme Court itself did something unusual. While they didn't have cameras in the courtroom, they did allow uh, live audio. Live audio. And it was just, I mean, you used to be able to, and you could hear things after the fact, but you could actually listen in. And, you know, that's for nerdy people like me, that's, you know, manna from heaven. But this is something that's going to be of interest to so many people in the same way the Watergate hearings were, I'm dating myself, or more recently, the January 6th committee hearings. And I just think it's so important for the same reason that we have jury service, that you want to people to see the system in action and feel like they're part of it and to be able to, to experience that and not get the evidence filtered through how it's being described. Right. Well, you mentioned the evidence. Uh, let, let's let's talk about it. Let's let's get through the filters. Uh, yeah. What popped out to you? I've, I've heard some people say after reading Tuesday's indictment, well, eighty-five percent of this came out through the January six hearings. Uh, is that true? And if so, what is the notable new information? I do think that there's a lot that is uh, the, the facts that were uncovered by the January six committee, and I don't de- say that to denigrate the work of the special counsel, it's that, you know, there are underlying facts and there were investigators and they uncovered a lot of it. Uh, Now, you can tell that there are some new pieces because they had additional powers. So, for instance, the vice president of the United States, the former vice president, clearly has gone into the grand jury and given information. He has also clearly given contemporaneous notes. Uh, Now, note to self, it is remarkable to me that you have the former White House counsel taking notes. You have the former vice president taking notes. Just to be clear, that is not normal. If you asked people whether they take notes of what uh, Biden says or Obama says or Bush says, people don't do that. You know why people don't do that? Because they're not expecting the president of the United States to lie about what happened in a meeting. For the vice president to be taking contemporaneous notes or Don McGahn or Pat Cipollone to be doing that is because they are worried and they need a contemporaneous record of what mm. exactly happened. I mean, it is that is just a little aside, but those notes can be proved quite useful. We saw them, by the way, with Mr. Corcoran in the Mar-a-Lago case, where some of those notes are actually cited in the documents case because he too was taking notes. They were less contemporaneous, but they were also notes. So I think the vice president's um, statements were, uh, I think, um, fairly remarkable. The statement from his chief of staff, the vice president's chief of staff, that they were so concerned about the president's conduct 
toward the vice president that he alerted Secret Service to the potential threats, which, by the way, then happened the next day. So this was that was both prescient and it was well-founded. But again, if you step back, what is that saying? The vice president and his chief of staff were worried about his security because of the president of the United States. I mean, it's it is it, it, it's still that, that to me still has enormous shock value. There also, I think, were some some interesting details with respect to Jeffrey Clark, a former Justice Department official. Uh, it's interesting. It, the indictment makes clear he actually was the acting attorney general of the United States on January 3rd. He was given that offer and accepted it. And then the president uh, relented at the end of the day. So that's a new piece. And the scheme with respect to Jeffrey Clark is laid out. I, I am as certain as we are talking uh, on, on this uh, podcast, I am certain that Jeffrey Clark and other conspirators are going to be charged if they have not been charged already. And that's because it could have happened under seal, and we just don't know. Exactly. And it seems that the conventional wisdom is uh, Smith had this case just against Trump to make it a speedier trial. Do do you believe that as well? Yes, absolutely. To get Um, this moving. Yeah, it is unusual the amount of detail in this indictment about the conspirators and their criminality. This is pure speculation. If I had to guess, I, I would say this may have been written with the idea of multiple defendants, and then a decision was made to to pull it apart because there's just it is an unusual amount of detail about the conspirators that clearly focuses on their criminality, uh, mm. and, and there's just I, I'm just thinking about if I were in their shoes, it's hard to imagine doing that and not bringing a criminal case against them with this level of allegations in this high-profile case. Hmm. We're going to talk about just how speedy a trial could be. Uh, That and more with Andrew Weissman in just a moment. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. Hey, we're back on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Stelter, speaking with Andrew Weissman about the newest, latest, greatest Trump indictment. So he's being uh, arraigned on Thursday, and then uh, the case will proceed from there. We'll talk about the timeline momentarily. But but first, Andrew, this conversation about Trump's state of mind, 
one of the defenses I'm seeing in the right-wing media and the, the Fox universe is that uh, you know, Trump was just exercising his free speech rights. Uh, and, and, you know, that they're all against cancel culture over there. So they think Trump's trying, people are trying to cancel Donald Trump. Um, so what of this state of mind argument? Well, those are sort of two separate um, issues, but the, the, a free speech, you obviously the, the indictment goes out of its way to say, if you want to say that you won the election and it's false, go ahead. It's, it's actions based on that, that are the issue. That's not a free speech issue. That's an action that as somebody has said, you know, if you go into a bank and you say, give me all your money and you point a gun at them, Give give me all your money is a statement. You have the right to make that statement. That doesn't mean it's legal. Um, and you're not committing a crime because you're taking an action. And those words are part of the action of robbing the bank. Well, this is an assault on American democracy. And um, the indictment goes out of its way to talk about actions that the former president was taking. Um, so to me, that, that sort of First Amendment issue seems like a... A make weight uh, that right. the that the Total indictment distraction. exactly, yeah. and the indictment also goes out of its way to really not put too much weight on what happened at the ellipse to not get into that whole First Amendment uh, debate and to focus on his actions. And then with state of mind, let me just give you an example of what I would say, and it's pretty clear from this indictment that what the, I think the government's going to say with respect to state of mind. You know, you think that you won the election, then. Um, you can legally go to court and make your arguments as long as it's an, a, not a frivolous case. And that's how the rules work. And if the law of the courts say, no, that's not what happened, that's it. You don't get to take the law into your own hands. And if you really thought that you were acting in good faith, why are you lying to the, at least according to these allegations, to the vice president of the United States? Why are you lying to the American public and saying that the vice president agrees with me, the, uh, Donald Trump, that uh, the vice president has the power to reject the electoral college votes? Donald Trump issued a statement on January 5th saying that, and the vice president, according to the indictment, clearly says, that's not true. I did not agree. And you know he didn't agree because the next day he didn't act that way. Hmm. So those kinds of things where the indictment goes over and over again, the ways in which Donald Trump lied, I think is going to go a very long way with the jury to showing a lack of good faith and a lack of a true belief. And at the end of the day, where's the proof? I mean, that's sort of the bottom line of this is like, you want to say that you actually believe you won the election? Fine. Where's the proof of that? To this date, we don't have it. You know, on this subject, I've been so immersed in Dominion v. Fox, you know, that case that was settled in April. And a lot of that was about what did the hosts really believe? What were they really thinking? And, and the fact that so many people emailed them the truth was an important part of Dominion's case. It sounds like there's a little bit of a parallel here with Trump. The, yeah, there is the the legal standards different um, yeah. there. You you know because uh, the First Amendment rights um, of the press, the standard again is extremely high. Yeah. But there is a parallel in that um, here the indictment goes out of its way to talk about the people who told the former president he lost the right. White House counsel the White House Deputy Counsel, the Attorney General, the Acting Attorney General, the Acting Deputy Attorney General, the head of the Department of Homeland Security, the uh, Department of uh, National Intelligence, 
60, over 60 judges ruling against him. Um, And then, of course, the vice president and his staff. So again, there's just this huge array of people who had every incentive, if it was true, to tell him that he won. But you know what? They were all tethered to the facts. (laughs) There's this amazing quote that came out through the indictment where a senior campaign aide emails and says, uh, it's tough to, to own any of this when it's all just conspiracy shit beamed down from the mothership. So I think the mothership is is the president. How do you read that? I, I read that as the the Trump campaign, and that the Trump campaign was just spinning and spewing this. But but the people on the ground were saying, you know, that's fine. Where's the facts? Yeah, we can't um, find any proof for this. We're, that's why we're zero for thirty two on our cases. Exactly. Right. right. Exactly. What other kind of documentary evidence stood out to you? I mean, in the in the documents case, in the other one of the other indictments, you know, there's this wealth of video and and and, and photography and audio evidence. Is there the same amount in this case, and does it matter? Well, it's it's different in the sense that that case is about um, the illegal retention of. Uh, specifically 32 charged documents. So the, those documents form the gravamen of, of of that case and then obstruction of the case. Here, I think if you're looking for that kind of hard evidence, I mean, there are going to be the defendant's own words and tweets, but I think that it's going to be through witness testimony and then obviously quite famously through the tape recording with Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, where I, I was actually um, pleased to see that the special counsel was focusing not just on the number of votes that the president's entity needed, but the not-so-veiled threat of criminal prosecution um, that was raised by the former president um, against Brad Raffensperger to try and have him uh, change the Georgia electoral votes. You should want to have an accurate election. And you're a Republican. We believe that we do have an accurate election. No, I know you don't. No, no, you don't. You don't have. You don't have. Not even close. You got. You're off by hundreds of thousands of votes. You know what they did, and you're not reporting it. That's a. You know, that's a criminal. That's a criminal offense. And and you know you can't let that happen. That's that's a big risk to you and to Ryan, your lawyer. That's a big risk. But they are shredding ballots, in my opinion based on what I've heard, and they are removing machinery, uh, and they're moving it as fast as they can, both of which are criminal fines, and you can't let it happen, and you are letting it happen. You know, I mean, I'm notifying you that you're letting it happen. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes. And, of course, an indictment in Georgia could come... Well, it would be fair to say at any time, right, Andrew? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I do. I do think uh, we're waiting for there's an uh, there is an August 10th uh, hearing date that's scheduled in front of a judge there. Fonnie Willis may be waiting for that to conclude. Mm. Um, it, there's a lot of reason to think that that hearing may be moot at this point for because of a, another prior decision against Donald Trump. But uh, it's I think Fonnie Willis has made it clear it could be any day now up to and including the end of August. So, but I think very in very short order, we're going to find ourselves with not just three criminal cases against the 45th president of the United States, but four. 
Andrew, there, there's so much to talk about here. You've known Jack Smith uh, personally for many years. So let's talk about who he is um, as a special counsel, as a person, much more in just a moment. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. I'm Brian Stelter, speaking with former federal prosecutor Andrew Weissman. So with this newest case, the January 6th indictment, um, you suggested it's airtight. It's a slam dunk. What then could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, I I don't think I'd, I'd want to use the word slam dunk. It, I just don't think that this case is about the facts and the law. I think the facts seem... If if what's here can be proved, and so much of it is is really hard to dispute, it's like, for instance, the what it is that the defendant did um, seems pretty dispositive. Um, I I think that the issue is whether he will get to trial, um, whether there'll be a political out, whether, for instance, if he is elected, he can end this case immediately. If a ally of his is elected, they, that person, he or she, can end the case. Uh, I'm not that word in, in D.C. about jury nullification. Um, so that's that's usually a concern. But I, I just think given the gravity of these charges and assuming that the uh, government can prove what they set out, I don't see jury nullification in this setting. Um, so I really do think the issue is going to be whether this case gets to trial either before the general election or if the trial is after the general election, uh, whether mm. we have a president who lets it go forward. Well, that gets to the timeline element here. So how speedy could a speedy trial be? Well, a couple data points. One, uh, we had on our podcast on Monday, uh, Judge Ludig, uh, he's a very re- well-respected former federal judge, he said that he saw no reason whatsoever that this case or the documents case could not be tried before the general election. Um, I have had experience also with the D.C. courts when I was uh, trying the Manafort case that actually uh, went to trial in 11 months. It is definitely doable. But I also want to make sure people understand that a certain amount of time and delay is what is required by due mm-hmm. process, that any defendant is time has given time to read discovery, make motions, prepare for the case, prepare for cross-examination. That is what it means to have a rule of law in this country. So you can't just indict somebody and then say you're going to trial in the next month. Um, that's that's not how our system works. Does someone literally step in and organize these three different criminal trials? Is there someone who can step in and, and <laughs> decide no. what goes in what order? No. no. Um, so it's very unusual, of course, to have somebody who's facing charges in three cases, let alone four cases. Even two cases is unusual. Right. Um, and that's where I do think that the prosecutors likely will need to talk, but also the judges will talk. And they will sort it out. Exactly. Um, 
Yeah, there's been commentary, there's been articles, I was reading one of the New York Times comparing and contrasting Jack Smith's approach with Robert Mueller's approach. Since since you were on the inside of the Mueller investigation, what do you make of the similarities and differences, specifically how quickly Smith is moving? Um, so I actually think that's a similarity. I, I actually thought the Times was kind of apples and oranges. I didn't really think that was a great article, with all due respect. I'm glad I asked them. This um, is good to hear. Yeah, I, I mean, whatever Robert Mueller's faults are, and they're very few, speed is not one of them. When you think about the number of cases that he brought to fruition in such a short amount of time, I mean, within a few months, we had indicted Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, George Papadopoulos. A couple of months later, we had the Russia indictments. A couple of months later, we had more indictments, including the second Russia indictment. So within a year, there were really you know, dozens of people who had been charged. And then there were, we wrote up a very, very lengthy report at the mm-hmm. end. And that's not, by the way, to say anything against Jack Smith. I think he has been unbelievably fast and is very aware of the clock. But I think that's the similarity of the two of them is how quickly both of them moved. And I think they're built in the same way in that regard. How about uh, Mueller versus Smith on being public-facing, right? I thought it was important that Smith came out on Tuesday, but but also in the documents case, and gave those public statements. They, they were short, they were sober, but they were public statements to explain the cases. Um, so I would say, yeah, there's a slight difference. I mean, uh, yes, uh, Jack did make a brief statement, but if you actually think about it, the, you know, he, I think it's good that he did that. That's a little bit more than Robert Mueller, who's famously very shy and has the sort of view that just you live by the press, you die by the press. Uh, but <laughs> I actually think they're very similar in that, mm. you know, neither of them is Archibald Cox, not where, you know, Archibald Cox famously, you know, had a long press conference to explain why he was doing what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Neither of them are taking that route. Um, both of them very much have the I speak through the indictments and what yeah. we do in court. So if you were in Jack Smith's shoes, <laughs> first of all, would you want to be? I mean, what would you be going through right now? And, and what are the next steps? So just, no, I mean, I, I know Jack Smith very well. He's a wonderful choice for this. And in particular, not just his state and federal experience and his public corruption experience, but I think his experience in the international criminal court dealing with very much the same issues about leaders violating the rule of law. It, it makes him, I think, uniquely positioned to be doing this at this time. I think we're mm. really fortunate to have somebody with that level of experience in, in that many different arenas. And he is an upstanding, honest guy with a ton of prosecutorial experience and a strong backbone and, you know, complete moral fiber in terms of, you know, being upstanding and who you would want to be representing the United States, whether in a domestic courtroom or overseas. Mm. I think the main thing we're going to be seeing is his asking for a speedy trial. I think that we're going to see, as we saw in the documents case, that discovery is turned over on a silver platter very quickly to be able to tell the judge this is all ready to go. 
I do think that we're going to see other charges, but I don't think that they're going to be in this case. There won't be a superseder that slows this down. I wouldn't expect that. I'd be surprised by that. But I do think that we're going to see other people being charged uh, in connection with this case at the federal and at the state level. And with Smith, you think he can withstand the pressure? I mean, they tried to destroy you in the in the Mueller team. Totally. Um, they're going to. They're already trying to destroy. Of Smith. course. Yes. I mean, I he knew he knew what he was getting into. It's it's beyond unfortunate that prosecutors, agents, judges, jurors, poll workers uh, like Ruby Freeman. I mean, it's a, it's unbelievably unfortunate that we're at a state where you have to worry about those threats when you are just doing your public service, uh, but there's no question in my mind that the people on the special counsel team, like the uh, people in the Department of Justice in general, can completely withstand that. Andrew Weissman, thank you so much. You're welcome. And once again, that was Andrew Weissman, former federal prosecutor, now NYU professor, lawyer, and MSNBC regular. He's the co-host of their Prosecuting Donald Trump podcast. And this episode of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair is produced by Michael May. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our engineer is Jake Loomis. Mixing is by Mike Kutchman. And I'm Brian Stelter. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, let us know what you think of the show. Uh, tweet at me. I'm at Brian Stelter on Twitter and threads. And uh, you can email me anytime. I'm bstelter at gmail.com. We'll be back next Thursday with more Inside the Hive. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.